I am not Nathan Cravat. Well, and I'm not J.C. Groves. And we are definitely not Brian Edwards. No, we're John, me and you are not old enough to be Brian Edwards. Um, <laughs> but if we were, I would want to have his wisdom at his age. Come on. Yes, sir. And we are the guys from the Four Freedom Podcast. I'm John Hollyfield. And I'm James Seyfert. And I think there's only one thing left to say, James. Let's go. You know what makes women stupid is college. Jesus was not a bartender. Hi, man. Two. You have lost your mind. Long tongue heifers have given me a lot more trouble than heifers wearing breeches. And you know that. Say amen right there. One. Let me tell you something, bozo. They'll be selling frosties in hell for this boy. Put on a pair of pink underwear. Amen. I sucked my thumb till I was 14 years of age. Hi, man. All right, we are here on the RFP, the Recovering Fundamentalist Podcast, and James, this is surreal. This is this is totally surreal because um, I, I started the podcast a year ago, and I never would have dreamed that um, I would have been able to get one of them on as a as a guest on the podcast. Like I, I reached out to Nathan way back when and was like, "Hey, would you?" be okay coming on because they had already grown so big and uh and so he came on and then the fact that they asked us to join the network was incredibly um humbling and and now they've asked us to fill in Mm. i i I, i'm sitting here thinking at some point do they really listen to our podcast (laughs) yeah (laughs) i i remember john when you text me for the first time and said hey go listen to a this intro go listen to this uh rfp thing and i listened to it and it was mind-blowing how awesome that intro was and then the episodes of course were great as well uh but to think that uh we we get to do that and we get to be a part of this network and to be with these guys it is incredible and uh, i want to say thank you to nathan jc and brian for allowing us to be a part of you guys and to be able to sit in and, and, and talk a little bit today about this topic. Uh, John, we've got some cool things going on our podcast that's coming up. Uh, you want to give some updates and some things that we've got coming up? Yeah, so uh, we actually are, we've been taking some time off. And during our time off, they asked us to fill in for them while they're taking their time off. <laughs> yeah, so no time off for us. So. But we're totally, totally thankful for the opportunity, and we're excited about that. But uh, we have been taking some time off. We're going to jump back into it in August. And uh, we, for those who do listen to our podcast, we are the For Freedom Podcast. And we're going to explain a little bit of what that, that title means in a little bit as we get into what we're going to talk about today. But um, uh, we... Uh, covers we've covered several subjects and we we have guests on we've actually been doing sort of a series with the hosts of the RFP network and we have just a few more left to go in doing that we're going to have the uh, Will and and Brian from the church split uh, on when we come back in August and we're going to talk about the absence of apologetics within the IFB and then we're going to have Nathan 
uh, on again, and uh, and we're going to talk about hyper separatism uh, within the IFB and sort of uh, a biblical understanding of separation uh, in, in that. And then we're going to start covering some other topics on uh, on different things. And 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 so this episode today is going to be sort of like a a little bit of of what we're gonna we're our idea of, of what our goal is, our drive is on what we do on our podcast, but also it's going to be a little bit of a, a precursor to what we're going to start covering on ours. And so um, that is is basically uh, for freedom. We, we've been doing some tweaking as well, so when we come back in August, you're going to see uh, a little bit of a difference. We're going to have some new, uh, James has already worked us up, some new artwork, so we're going to have some new artwork, and we've been working on a new intro uh, so be looking out for that, and we'll have that new intro for you. We're going to save that, and we're going to have that. So when you listen to us in August, when we come back, uh, be, be be ready for that new intro because I think that um, it may overshadow our entire episode. I'm pretty excited about it. It's going to be cool. But, uh, James, what do you say we jump into this? Yeah, let's jump right in. Today's topic for our episode is Recognizing Spiritual Abusive Communities. Um, and uh, this can be from churches. This could be from uh, just groups that you're in in the community. Uh, it could be a Pilates group or a yoga group, and you know it doesn't. <laughs> this doesn't have to specifically be churches um, because you can recognize even a family community. Um, I know that sometimes you get around family that were raised one way, and all of a sudden you feel that pull or that tug of that spiritual abusiveness. Um, and so when we talk about this, this isn't specifically churches. Um, we want to preface that this could be any group or community or, or unit that you're in uh, where you can see these things. Um, and so go ahead, John. Right. Yeah. But right. But, but one of the burdens I had about covering this is that you see a lot in the discussion group about um, those that are just leaving the church and sort of like, what do we do now? And one of the burdens that I've had, I don't think we're going to be able to cover everything. We're going to give you a little bit of a taste here. But one of the burdens that I've had is is for those, because this does happen, and it can happen, and that is when you leave a spiritually abusive church or community, sometimes you're a little unsure that you're going to fall back into another one. It just might look a little bit different. And, um, and so... Uh, that, as as I think many of us understand and know that the IFB are not the only ones out there that have a monopoly on spiritual abuse. It can happen in in any denomination, in any church. Uh, now, I specifically believe that the system of the IFB is, is prone to spiritual abuse, and I'm going to explain that in a little bit. But I, w- I do want to set this up, and that is this— um, a lot of what we're going to discuss today is taken from David Johnson and Jeff Van Van Vonderen's, uh book, The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. Now, I don't want you to think that we're just stealing their stuff and, and reusing their stuff, but what it is is there's a chapter in here that we're going to sort of break down. And Really, what we're doing is we're using some of the insights that these guys have written down in this book um, in just a little small chapter, a little small snippet. And we're going to use it as sort of a springboard of a conversation. So you might find some of it useful, 
But at the same time, we're, we're going to use what they have said, their insights. We're not going to try to recreate the wheel or anything with this idea. But we looked at them and we said, this is really amazing material. And so we want to use some of these notes to sort of springboard a conversation today and talk about this. And uh, when I talk about this spiritual abusive community, what's talked about, James, and it's been talked about a lot in the different podcasts. It's been talked about a lot and defined a lot here on the RFP, and that is legalism. And I personally believe that legalism is spiritual abuse. Yeah, and the good definition of legalism is this, putting or enforcing an extra-biblical standard on another, which adds a burden to another believer. Um, Now, I remember, John, and and I asked my pastor in Idaho, I said, hey, can you define what legalism is? It was the first time I'd really ever heard the term, uh, you know, about 9, 10, well, it was more than that, uh, about 13 years ago. And this was his definition, legalism is anything that adds to salvation. And at the time it made sense, but I believe it goes a lot more than that uh, because legalism can go outside of salvation. Um, and it can be this oppression that Paul talks about all the time. You look through the gospel, you look through the through uh, Paul's writing the epistles, and all of a sudden, out of everywhere, he's talking about why are you going back into this uh, oppression that you were under the law? You have this freedom, and that's why this... It's called the Four Freedom Podcast because you have been given freedom in Christ, but yet you want to still serve under the law. And God has broken the law from you, so you don't have to serve the law. You can serve grace. Um, And so this legalism, it goes more than just salvation. It's putting other standards, such as dress standards, such as appearance standards, such as where you can go. Uh, My wife, just last night, we're in the middle of vacation Bible school. And she taught the lesson to the high school students. And she was talking about legalism. And she said, I was, I remember, she, she gave this illustration. And, and she's told me this before, John, but it blew my mind. She said, our family had just gotten saved. Uh, we were going to church at the church we were at. And we were so excited. And she said, my dad, or my stepdad, went out and bought us all brand new Bibles. She said, it was, I'd never had a Bible of my own. I was a fourth grade girl. And she said, uh, I began taking this Bible to school, taking this Bible to church. It was it had that new Bible smell. I loved it. She said, my dad even had our name engraved on it with a little note on the front of it that said, I love you. Uh, and so she said, it was my prized possession. She said, I loved it. She said, I took it to Sunday school the next Sunday. And the, the Monday after that, the pastor came to our house and said, um, you can't bring that Bible to church anymore. That's not God's word. You, you, that, that's an abomination to bring in our church. You need to throw it away and get a real Bible. And so <clears throat> it was an NIV. And so my father-in-law went and threw the Bible away and got them brand new King James Bibles. She said, it was the hardest thing for me to let go of that Bible. But now it's the hardest thing for me still when I use something other than the King James because that was so ingrained in me. And so she was pouring her heart out to our teenagers last night about that. Um, about being afraid to do things because someone's watching her. She said there was people that used to ride by the movie theaters and look at the cars to see if anyone that was part of the movie theater went to their church. I mean, just crazy things of legalism mm-hmm. that oppressed yeah. people. Well, I go back to you, what you said earlier about uh, that pastor that gave the definition that anything adds to salvation. 
And I think that the better understanding of that is anything that adds to the gospel. And if you only have a definition of the gospel that includes only your salvation, then yeah, I guess legalism would only be that which adds to your salvation. However, if you have a biblical understanding of the gospel and how it pervades every area of your life, even after salvation and into your sanctification, if you understand the gospel that way, then legalism very much so can have an effect on your Christian walk and adding things to it that you, you know, that you, you really don't have biblical premise for doing. So if that's the definition of legalism, David Johnson presents a definition of spiritual abuse, and he says it's the mistreatment of a person who is in need of help, support, or greater spiritual empowerment with the result of weakening, undermining, or decreasing that person's spiritual empowerment. Now, how does legalism and that definition of spiritual abuse fit? Are you, are you asking me, John, or are you going to – it's rhetorical. Sorry, I couldn't tell if you were going <laughs> to – Well, I was wondering if you if you had, a, you, you had a thought there because I think that it fits perfectly. Yeah. I think that if, when you talk about what's adding a burden on somebody else and then you take that definition of you mistreat somebody with the result of weakening or undermining or decreasing that person's spiritual empowerment, that is exactly what adding a burden onto them, an extra biblical standard onto them that they have to do, it's exactly what that does. Yeah, and I think when I hear that, though, the thing I think about is we, too many times, we want to be the Holy Spirit in that other person's life. And that's what legalism is. It is saying, listen, you don't need to worry about discerning from the Spirit. Let me take care of that for you. Let me tell you what you can and can't do. Let me tell you where you can and can't go. And just let me be your spiritual leader. And it brings that whole author- that pastoral authority to a whole other level of I am the superiority of everything in your life. And you don't need to worry about listening to the Holy Spirit. Just listen to me. I'll, I'll guide you. And... That's where we get to this point where you decrease that person's spiritual empowerment or discernment because that person has no need to pray. That person has no need to have a deeper walk with God because all I got to do is ask my pastor. He'll come and pray for. Mm-hmm. He'll come and pray for the house I need to buy. He'll come and pray for the car mm-hmm. I need to get. Uh, you know, he'll 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 line up the marriage that I need to be and line up the person I'm going to marry. Um, how many times in college did I see that where our pastor said? You know, I think y'all need to get married. And boom, a couple months later, they're getting married because he said it. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it, it, Johnson said it occurs when leaders use their spiritual position to control or dominate another person, which is what you just defined. It's exactly what you just defined. Yeah. And so that, to me, equates spiritual abuse. Now, if we're talking about this in a context of of a church or a community, you know, I went to Bible college for four years and grew up in it, but not in sort of a, a strictly abusive system. It wasn't until I went to Bible college that I really was part of that. And then, you know, worked for another four years in church. And you think about people that spent, you know, there's definitely listeners who have spent a whole lot more time in it to that. And so the question may say, people may say, if it's so bad, why stay there? Obviously, it wasn't that bad because look at all the good it produced, even in you. Yeah. So, James, list off 
quickly here, the six points of why people stay in spiritually abusive relationships. All right, here you go. There's too much at stake to leave. Your friends, the years you've invested, and people's opinion. We talked about this a couple weeks ago as well. Um, Just that that emotional stake. Um, Number two, they're afraid. They are terrified by the perpetrator's threats to harm them, to hurt their parents, or to take the kids if they leave. They become so. De- Man, you mentioned this. You mentioned this to me yesterday. Yeah, like, yeah. The, the story of that one pastor who would threaten people with a story of somebody who uh, was killed uh, because, and he he presented it to the people as, as because he left the church. Yeah. He would he would have it. So he had two stories. He had one in his office, and he had one that he would use from the pulpit. Uh, the one he had in his office was um, a family left his church, and when they left, uh, a couple of days later, they had a car accident, and the entire family died because they left their church. Um, he said, "So that's why you should stay at this church." And then the one he would use from the pulpit was a family left, and he told them if they left, that their son was going to go astray, and. Two weeks later or something, their son left and went and lived in like the world. And so he used that as an illustration of sort of he was a prophet, but he was discerning for their family. Uh, and they were just so terrified. People would hear that, and they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to do that. That is a spiritual abusive community. Number three, they have become so dependent on the abusive system that they don't know if they could leave or and or survive emotionally or financially away from that specific system, which is mm. crazy to think that you would be that tight, that tied down. Uh, number four, they feel that they blame that they are to blame for in, inciting the abuse, and they are only getting what they deserve. I think I felt that way a lot. I, I think I felt like anything that any reprimand, any face rip, or something like that was because I truly deserved it. Yeah. You know, I was I was being a terrible Christian. I was being a terrible, you know, I just didn't have the right attitude. I need to be more positive and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Just about the time they decide to leave, this is the one that, that for me, it, I mean, it gets me. Things improve for a while, so they keep changing their mind. Man, I, mm. I, I'm done with this. I'm done with this, this, the, this culture. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, things start getting better, and things seem to change, and you're like, oh, well, okay, maybe maybe God's working in their heart like he's working in mine. So we stay, we don't leave, and then we go back into that same cycle. Mm-hmm. And then the last one, number six, they believe things about themselves, their relationship, or God that are untrue. Yeah, and I wrote this down. I believe this is true. I believe it's true because churches that operate with legalistic, spiritually abusive systems send shame-based messages to their people that says to them they are not loved and accepted, not even lovable or acceptable, only loved and accepted if, when, or because they perform well, not capable of or valuable or worthwhile, or very alone and not really belonging anywhere to anything or anyone. And so Johnson and Van, der, Van Vondren really have presented some, I think, some very good insights with understanding this mindset, right? And and understanding sort of where the person is at, or maybe where, if you're listening, where you've been. 
I, 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 there is a possibility that we, somebody may be listening that's right in the middle of this. And so, um, we, we want to give you some of these things. These are some of the, 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 the highlights. I think there's, there's seven, seven points here, seven points that they have on, um, on uh, a few things to look out for to let you know if you are a part of a spiritually abusive church and to help you avoid falling back into that spiritually abusive church. So let's start this. This will be the, the meat, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. So here it is. Number one, out loud shaming. Yeah, this is any message that, that is communicated out loud that says something is wrong with you. This could be a negative view of self, self-hatred, negative self-talk, such as I'm no good, I'm stupid, I'm incapable. Um, this is, you know, I, I hear, I, I think kids do this all the time, but um, when Brody, he's very, very negative on himself, my, my oldest son. And when he um, messes up playing baseball, he'll just say, I, I just can't do this, Dad, I'm no good. I, I And I tell him, Brody, you just need practice. You just need uh, work at it. But when this comes from the pulpit, when people use their platform as a pastor, as a preacher, to say, you are not good, you are um, negative, you have no good thing in you, uh, which is true. We are totally depraved. But when they get to the point where they communicate that says something is wrong with you, uh, this is that shaming that we've heard so many times um, from pastors that came through college that you know, are outside of the gospel, outside of um, just our need of a savior, but all of a sudden they begin to shame us and that keeps us in this system of abuse. Man, I can't tell you how much that I've seen this and and the effect that it has on somebody. Yeah, I mean, th- this really is a culprit of things like depression, anxiety, because when you are giving yourself these lies that you are no good, you're stupid, you're incapable, everything that you touch fails, then before long, you start to believe it, and if you believe it, then you begin to ask yourself questions of, what's the point? What's the point? And then discouragement's there, depression's there, and it's it's just a, a vicious cycle that really should never have begun in the first place because someone who had some type of spiritual authority then has has perpetrated this, and it's really, uh, really messed up. And so this is something that we hope that you you will um, recognize and begin to chase because this really messes up with somebody's spiritual identity. It distorts their identity in Christ because you've been redeemed. Mm-hmm. You've been redeemed by Christ. So your unworthiness, yeah, but you've been made worthy by the Redeemer. Yeah. What's number two? Number two is focus on performance. This is how people act is more important than who they are or what is happening to them on the inside. Some of the effects of this is perfectionism or giving up without trying, doing only those things that you're good at, not being able to admit mistakes, procrastination, the view of God that is more concerned of how you act than who you are personally and spiritually as a person. And John, I want to give just a a quick illustration of this. 
because I was able to go back to Arkansas and spend some time with some people a couple of weeks ago on vacation uh, that were professors, teachers, people that are around me, just being able to talk with them. And I spoke with one lady. I'm not going to mention a name or age or anything. And I spoke with this lady, and she told me, she said, James, because I was asking about her spiritual life and her spiritual walk, if she was in church anywhere. And she said, I haven't stepped foot in church since I left the church that we were at in Arkansas. And I said, why? I said, well, I said what's the reason? I said, you were, a, you were a vital part of my life, my wife's life. I said, why, why haven't you stepped back foot in church? She said, James, she said, I was preached from the pulpit that women are never allowed to wear pants. She said, just this one issue. I'm going to talk about this. She said, women were never allowed to wear pants. I was told from the pulpit that they had a Bible, they had a chapter, they had a verse that said women could not wear pants. Okay? We leave the church, some things happen, and now I look at the church and women are wearing pants. There are high school girls who have their prom dresses down really low and really high on the waist. And all of this stuff that was preached, that there was Bible against, well, now I guess the Bible changed. And she said, she told me this statement, and it was so true in my life when it comes to legalism. She said, if they were that wrong about pants, what else are they wrong about? Because when we preach so dogmatically about performance and about things that aren't in the Bible, we begin to lead people astray and they ask that question. If they're wrong about that, what else are they wrong about? That's why it's so important that we preach expository, that we preach what the whole Bible says, and that we are apologetic, as we're going to talk about with the church split, because we have gotten so far away from that, that when people begin to read the Bible on their own, they say, well, there, this isn't even an issue in the Bible, that they begin to question even more things when they should really be questioning the spiritual aspect, not the performance-based aspect. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, and that's that's one of the the main things that I think that plagues us in in today's Christianity is that we are good at looking right on the outside, but getting to the heart of the matter seems to be the hardest thing for us to do. Yeah, and that's where the gospel is to do its work, but we fight that so hard by putting up everything we can and this type of system only does but the only thing it does is reinforces that type of mentality that if i put up the outside front i'm good i'm good but what's happening is your heart is slowly decaying and rotting on the inside because you're not taking care of it you're not addressing those idols in your heart because what's wrong with what's got my preoccupation as long as I'm looking right and I'm saying the right things at the right time to the right people. So the next one is one that me and James are going to actually do an entire episode on, and that is manipulation. Manipulation. So Johnson and Van Vonderen say relationships and behaviors are manipulated by very powerful unspoken rules. These rules are seldom, if ever, said out loud. Uh, this one re- like just was huge for me because this was exactly the way uh, the place was that I, I came from. The 
can't talk rule mm-hmm. keeps people quiet by labeling them as the problem if they notice and confront a problem because people they feel they cannot talk about an unspoken rule they learn to talk and code to convey what they mean he did, they talk about this idea of coding here they say coding is an example of verbal manipulation saying things in code instead of saying them straight talking about people instead of to them wow think about how they, what they've just said there talking about people instead of to them message carrying for people oh dude i, oh, this hate, I hated me nuts. i hated that one so much the oh my goodness carrying. yeah expecting others to know your code difficulty trusting people reading other meanings into what people are saying this is this is all examples of manipulation they they, they even mentioned this one is called triangulating it's another way of acting manipulative in relationships. This simply means to send a message to someone through another person instead of delivering it directly. I mean, I can't tell you how much this really dug in my skin. You know, this this type of thing, and, and, and James and I have been studying this, and so it's really been like frustrating to me because not even just with, with other people, but now that I'm sort of getting... Uh, an idea and and def- defining what a manipulation is and what it looks like like I see it and catch myself sometimes and and just subtle things and then I see it in other people and I'm like <laughs> but but this is something that happens in these types of uh, churches or communities all the time and you know what happens James is it actually becomes a method that is taught and passed on that becomes the entire culture of how people communicate. Yeah. Because they see the leaders treating people this way. And then uh, they, they see the, 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 commu- the leaders communicate this way, and so then they begin to duplicate that, that communication or manipulation towards others that are, that are, uh, that are either coming into the community or... Uh, or just getting ready to, you know, just growing in the community. Yeah, John, uh, manipulation, man, it's so... Uh, the thing that for me is it, it's never taught like telling us this is manipulation. It's sort of taught like uh, a bait and switch, like this is how you're going to talk to people, or we see how it's done, so we emulate it. Um, and then we begin realizing, and I myself, as I'm reading more on this manipulation, how much... Um, not how much, but just how a, a manipulative I can be in my talk and not even realize it. Um, and so we're going to do, like I said, a whole episode, like John said, a whole episode on this, and uh, it's going to be great. Uh, but the next one, John, is idolatry. Um, and this is the God with the little g served by the shame-based relationship system is an impossible-to-please judge, obsessing on people's behaviors from a distance, whose mood it is dependent on them. Uh, and so this is just that uh, looking at other people. The false gods of shame-based systems are appearance, how things look, what people think, and they're all power-oriented. Uh, John, idolatry, man. It, I said this just a couple of days of vacation Bible school, and I had one teenager, John, and it blew my mind that they said this. I said, guys, 
I said, we don't worship God, idols of gold and silver anymore because we're talking through Paul and at the Arapagus as he's talking to uh, the, the unknown God and to the Stoics and the Epicureans. And I said, guys, I said, what are some idols today? And so they're throwing out, um, you know, movie stars, Marvel characters. They're throwing out things like that. But I had one girl raise her hand and she said, I think our phone is an idol. And I was blown away that I had a high school teenager say that their phone is an idol because so much it is because we spend all of our time on that. And if we don't have our phone, all of a sudden we begin to get anxiety. Teenagers begin to do that. Um, I heard a story the other day, John, of a teenager at a youth conference where um, the pastor was, was preaching. He said, you need to come and you need to lay your life down the altar. And the next day they came in and a half a dozen to 12 teenagers came up and laid their phone on the altar. And he got up and he was confused and, and he said, because he was an older preacher, he said, why, why are y'all putting your phones up here? And one guy said, that's my life. And that, that's symbolizing that I'm laying my life on the altar. And it's crazy that teenagers see that, but yet they are okay with it. Mm. Yeah. I didn't, I, this really blew up in the place that I was whenever Clarence Sexton came to town. <laughs> like you really found out who the God was when Clarence Sexton came to town. You know, what, what, one of the ways that you can tell uh, an idol is, is whether you want, you desire it so much that you're willing to sin to get it. You know, we talked earlier about uh, those unspoken rules and there was an unspoken rule that uh, on Sunday mornings, if you were in the choir, you wore a tie you dressed up, you wore a suit or a tie or something like that. But, you know, if we were doing choir and Wednesday night or something like that, then if you were coming from work or, you know, you were, you were you know, dressed more casual, then that was understandable. That was acceptable. Except when Clarence Sexton was in town and a good friend of mine actually got um, told, like, are you planning to sing in the choir tonight in a midweek service? Uh, well, yeah, dressed like that. Uh, well, I guess not anymore. You know, because, and it was, it all had to do with optics. It all had to do with the fact that Sexton was there and they didn't want somebody dressed in a polo shirt in the choir. Yeah. How about that? Because Sexton was there. How about that story on Facebook of the guy, uh, that was at Crown at, uh, the practice at the, and, and Clarence Sexton walked up behind him. And they had a purple shirt on with a purple tie. And he made a statement. And then the guy turned around and lifted his tie up. And then Clarence, out of nowhere, said, from now on, the rule is your tie has to be a different color than your shirt. Like, <laughs> just so much legalism. So much abuse. Just because you have yeah, to be because, right. Yeah. Because the person in charge becomes the idol and using that power orientation over it. The effects of this is a, as a distorted image of God. It, and it produces a high level of anxiety based on other people or external circumstances. People-pleasing. Oh, my goodness. People-pleasing. That's one of the biggest problems you have with people that leave these places is they really struggle then with saying no. Yeah. Well, and, John, even, the, even on that topic right there, I read years ago, I read the Steve Jobs autobiography or biography. Um, I'm a huge Apple fan. I love <clears throat> reading after people and some of these historians that write things. And they had this, um, it was this distorted view of reality, this 
uh, when Steve Jobs came around, everyone was all about him, all about pleasing him, all about making sure that they liked his idea. Um, if he got mad, everyone knew it. But he would come in with this distorted view of reality. Hey, we're going to come out with a new device, and I want it done in six months. Realistically, it couldn't be done for two years. But he would push people, and he would make people bend to his will. Um, and that is what this is. It is this view of uh, these circumstances of people-pleasing that get us so wrapped up. Yeah. Let's look at number five. All right, preoccupation with fault and blame. Uh, in the New Testament, this is uh, purpose. the purpose of confessing a sin is to receive forgiveness and cleansing. This shame-based system wants a confession in order to know who the shame um, is, whom to make feel so defective and humiliated that they won't want to act that way anymore. This sense is something um, or someone is upsetting you must have caused it um, a high need to be punished for or to pay for the mistakes in order to feel good about yourself um, and and uh, you know how many times do they use that verse confess your faults one to another just so they know what you've done so they can hold that guilt over your head well this produces in someone that has a high tendency of automatically assuming it's their fault with everything that happens and they're quick to apologize for everything. Uh, this doesn't turn out with, with a lot of people. With some personality types, uh, this, this has a great effect on. And so, therefore, you know, when they leave, they really, really have a hard time with not viewing any, anybody's discomfort or uh, frustration as not, you know, not blaming themselves or feeling the need to go apologize for it. And this is a power control dynamic that uh, sets up uh, the issue of uh, it's not the one in charge's fault if anything wrong happens. It's someone else's. And so, therefore, somebody needs to take the blame because the leader sure isn't going to take the blame. All right, John, let's go to this next one, number six, obscured reality uh, or distorted reality. I like that one, too. Members have to deny any thought, opinion, or feeling that is different from those who are in authority. You cannot think for yourself. Your thoughts are only what I think. Um, and this is that distorted reality. I think that's what it was called in the Steve Jobs book, the distorted reality field. The DSF is what they would call it when he would come around, the distorted reality field, DRF, something like that. Um so, yeah, what's your thoughts people, on that, John? People can't find out. Johnson and Van Vonderen say people can't find out about life through normal trial and error. Learning because mistakes shame. Interaction with people and places outside the system threatens the order of things. I think this is where that whole doctrine idea of uh, abstain from anything worldly comes. Because there, there, you cannot make mistakes on your own. You have to shelter in place. I mean, this is where you see some of these IFB places where they have rules where uh, guys and girls can't date. I thought that was the dumbest thing i ever seen in my life uh, whenever I went there, and they're like, okay, we have um, – uh, I was talking to a teenager, and they're like, yeah, well, I like this girl, but I can't date her. Oh, her dad doesn't want, you know, want her to date? No, 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 no. We it's, it's a youth group rule. I was like, what the heck? I was like, how is the church able to set rules over every kid? But they had that there. I mean, you could not date. And they're so scared to death that 
you know, if that uh, this reality of you're not able to make mistakes on your own, and it really is usurping the role of parents in their lives. They really become the ultimate authority. The effects of this is is it really is a dumbing down for someone. Because Johnson says the effects of this is ignoring your radar because you are being too critical, self-analytical, narrow-minded, suffering stress-related illnesses, extreme forms of denial, even delusion. This, this, this actually hurts someone majorly. I mean, it, 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 it causes problems with, with growth and brain function. Because you're not using your mind to think and analyze the life situations around you. You automatically go back to um, what someone has told you that you're supposed to do or stay away from. So you're not growing. You're not learning. Yeah. And that is so true in all of ours. We have the Holy Spirit in us to discern and give us discernment in life. Um, And when we have some external force trying to give that... Um, they're really saying, I am better than the Holy Spirit. Um, and we all know they're not. We all know that they're fallen men just as we are. And so it's much more advantageous to us to listen to the Holy Spirit than to allow the pastor or some other person in your life, a, pa- a parent, um, if you're an adult and you've got a parent trying to um, reshape your mind, you've got to listen to the Holy Spirit in those areas. And you know these these uh, these spiritual abusive churches and communities, it, it hits it on another level of of um, backwards growth of, uh, and I'm going to use this word in the technical sense retardation of of development, and that is also in personal relationships. And this is where they come to the seventh thing: unbalanced interrelatedness. They say members of shame based systems are either under involved. Or over-involved with each other. Another word for under-involvement is neglect. Another word for over-involvement is enmeshment. This is when there are no clear boundaries between people. The effects of this. A lack of self-discipline. A high need for structure. A sense that if there is a problem, you have to solve it. Putting up boundaries that keep safe people away. Think about that. The only boundaries you do establish are to keep people that could help you away. How many how many times have we heard testimonials of people that did this with family? Yeah. Family All was concerned. Yeah, family was concerned that they were in some type of cult or something like that and immediately they're being told from their church leadership they need to cut off their family. That is cultic. Difficulty saying no. Allowing others to take advantage of you. Yep. Have you seen I, this, James, these problems with people and developing relationships? Oh, yeah, all the time. And even with me, John, those last two difficulty of saying no and allowing other people to take advantage of you, I think that's my hardest thing because if someone asks me something, it's really hard for me to say no to them. My wife tells me all the time, you've got to learn to say no. You've got to learn to manage things. Because ultimately, when you can't say no, people will take advantage of you. Um, and, and I see this over and over again, but I just, I, I, my heart for people, my heart for serving people just 
sometimes people do get the best of me, and I understand that. But at the same time, uh, I can see where this goes at a whole other level than just as someone trying to love people and, and serve people, um, but someone that is manipulatively trying to take advantage of you. 100%. 100%. If you've been a part of a, this kind of church, the effects may look like this. God rewards spirituality with material goods. If I am spiritual enough, things won't affect me emotionally. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Did that affect me? (laughs) I remember I struggled with depression quite a bit uh, in the the IFB ministry I was at. And people could tell. Uh, I don't know if they knew to say that it was depression, but I remember coming up, it was my turn to teach, and I remember the pastor in there um, finishing up his lesson, saw me standing at the door and said, you know, and he was teaching on something, and then he, he made this statement. He said, you know, this up and down type of emotional stuff, that, that's, not, that's not the joy of the Christian life. He said, that's not that's no New Testament Christian living. He said, always being up and down like this is not new. And I knew exactly what he was doing. He's taking a shot at me because everybody knew that I was down at the time. But I, I, was, I was struggling. And that just showed me right there, uh, okay, I can't, I could not talk to him about any of the things that I was struggling with. Yeah. I can well, never. number three, John. Yeah, go oh, ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, number three under this, this next one here, um, man, I, I'm listening to this uh, Mars Hill podcast of the rise and fall of Mars Hill um, and re- really evaluating the ministries that I've been in. And this one, I can never say no to those in religious authority. Um, I'm so grateful for the church I'm in right now, and I've got deacons and men that are that are okay with telling the pastor no. That are okay with saying, hey, I don't know if that's the right <laughs> thing right now at the church. Yeah. And when they say that to me, just to be real honest and blunt, it, it gets I get upset a little bit. Because I'm like, well, man, I, I think I'm doing, I think this is okay. But their discernment and their ability to say no and their freedom to say no helps us have a great relationship yeah. to where the people that said no in that, in that Mars Hill interview got fired and they got ran over the bus or kicked off the bus yeah. or however they said it. You know, that is so destructive and so dangerous. Um, the church we came from in college, our pastor surrounded himself with yes men. And if he wanted to do it, they did it. And, and I actually sat down with him, and he said, my biggest downfall that I ever did was allowing myself to be surrounded by people that couldn't tell me no. Mm. He actually admitted that to me. I sat down with, at breakfast with him one day, and he said, if I could go back, I would allow myself to be around elders and men that were okay with telling me no. Because at the end of the story, whatever pastor said, we're going to do. Yeah. And so I could have that freedom to just do and say whatever I wanted. Yeah. So. They continue on with this list. They say, everyone in the ministry is called by God, is appropriate, and must be trusted. Uh, I think that's very influential on a lot of people that's been through these. Number five was, God needs me to do ministry. I think this is a workaholic type of thing that you see in a lot of people that come from this. As soon as they leave, they're finding something else to do. And I've told, I've, I've given this counsel before, that somebody that is leaving a ministry like this, you need to take a year off. You need to, if you go and you find another church, let's say you're in your search hunt uh, for a church and you find the church you want to attend and you, you join. And I tell them, I say, 
after you join and you officially become members, you don't do anything for a year. Sit there, grow, heal. You don't because you're going to have this overwhelming sense of need to join. I need to be doing something. There's ministries they 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 and they'll make announcements that they need volunteers. For, don't do anything. You need that time. God doesn't need you. He wants you. There's a big difference. God can accomplish growing His kingdom while you heal. Yeah, and that was for me, John. The two years that I took off, I worked at Chick Fil A. I wasn't in ministry. That was the most amount of, I don't say I want to say the most amount, but that was an amount of time for restoration, for rejuvenation, for my soul, uh, for healing, for me and my family uh, that I didn't know I needed until you, literally you just said that. And I'm thinking, wow, those two years that I was not in ministry, that I was working at Chick-fil-A, every day of my life during that time, I was saying, I need to be in ministry. But looking back on it now, I'm thinking, wow, that was so powerful for me and my family um, and the amount of time I got to spend with them. And during that time with uh, a newborn and, it, you know, that was rejuvenating and that was helpful for me personally, spiritually development and understanding what I believe and why I believe it was so important and impactful for my life. Yeah. That's right. We need, let's, uh, I want to get to the good news here. So let me r- rattle off it. these last three. Uh, being in this type of ministry, uh, we've went through five so far. Uh, may you may see that the existence of trouble in your life indicates a lack of faith. Number seven is talking about problems will make God look bad. And number eight, and we could talk about this a long time. You may have been taught unity means agreeing about everything. That's not unity. That's sameness. That's sameness. That's not unity. And I know this seems let's 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 uh, we could have spent a lot of time on those last three. And I'm thankful for this book, James. I'm thankful for this book, The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. And if you're listening, I encourage you to go get you a copy and 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 read it. It it is it is excellent. And so we're thankful for what David Johnson and Jeff Van Vonderen have written in that book and was able to uh, use uh, what they've written to sort of discuss this today. And I know this seems like a lot of bad news. But the good news is that this is something Jesus was actually tearing down when he walked the earth. Jesus spent a good part of his ministry tearing down abusive religious systems, rescuing those abused by them, and exhibiting his love and grace to us. What is the answer? What is the answer? You say, John, James, you gave us a lot of stuff there, but what's the good news? The good news is the gospel. The very thing it attacks is the good news. It's the gospel. And so I want to read Galatians chapter 4, verse 28. And uh, I'm going to read a few verses here because I want to show you where the good news comes in. Okay? Uh, Paul had just been discussing sort of theologically um, this idea of the law and freedom by giving the Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and the birth of Isaac and Ishmael and that whole situation. He gets to verse 28 of chapter 4, and he says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? 
cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And this bleeds over into chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And that's our verse. That's our theme. It is for freedom. You are free in Christ. Live in that freedom. This, this, delve into the book of Galatians. It might be something for us to do on the podcast, James. Taking the book of Galatians and just going through it a chapter at a time per episode. It is something we want to do with this book. This book, The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. We want to do some episodes where we attack one chapter at a time just during a book review. But it may be something to do a Bible study one time on our podcast just going chapter by chapter through the book of Galatians. Because I'm telling you, you want help through this. There are a lot of great resources. These podcasts that are out here, Will and the Church Split, good stuff. You know, listening to other people's testimonies like Julius and Micah and what they've been through, you know, shout out to those guys. Uh, the RFWP, Lois and Emily, uh, you know, doing some great work. Um, the uh, John and Eli and the Preacher Kids podcast, you know, if you've, if you've grown up in a preacher's home, you'd need to be listening to that, Okay. Um, the, the young Baptist guys, Clay and Josh. <laughs> oh man, Straight fire! Fire, yeah. And and then um, you got, uh, of course, tw- David Sam that uh, covered yeah. last week. I mean, come on, I could listen to. The, they could have their own morning talk show uh, yeah. each morning, and I, I would just watch them on, on on TV. You know, every day, just just awesome. You, dive into these things. And, and listen to them. But get into, get into the Bible. Grab the Word of God. Study Galatians. You know, a couple of really good, um, easy commentaries to get for the book of Galatians is Warren Wiersbe's B-series. His, his, his uh, volume on Galatians is good. And then uh, Exalting Christ commentaries. Uh, David Platt wrote the one for Galatians. Um, and... Uh, that one is excellent. You can buy those, I think, on Lifeway or Amazon. Uh, get one of those real easy, not not hard, not a lot of reading. Just go through the book of Galatians with that and let God begin to work on your soul as you grow. James, you have any closing comments today? <clears throat> John, when you said that Jesus spent a good part of his ministry tearing down abusive religious systems, rescuing the abused by them, and exhibiting his love and grace to them. I saw somewhere on maybe the RP fan page or another one of my pages that I followed the other day, and someone had said, too many times we see the story of the woman caught in adultery, and that's what we say, the woman caught in adultery. But instead of calling it the woman caught in adultery, why don't we say it's the men accused of hypocrisy? And I thought, so true, Jesus never accused the woman of adultery but he accused the men that brought him there of the hypocrisy that they were living but yet we focus on the woman and not the man but that jesus where did he focus his time and energy on rebuking the men and giving healing to the woman that was being abused by this religious system and so many times we're in that same thing over and over and over again and we're guilty of that sometimes of accusing people of that same spiritual abuse without even realizing it.
Yep. Absolutely. You know, I forgot to throw a shout out there to um, the uh, rehab religiosos rehabilitados <laughs> um yeah but uh our, so two of our favorites mike and chin peters uh yeah i love oh, so them that's awesome it's still to this day my favorite two episodes of the rfp still to this day and we got to have them on and interview them uh such great great people and 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 mike jen too i mean just straight fire with some of their insights um, and that, and you know, we are incredibly thankful uh, for the opportunity to do this, and and so and speak to you guys. You know, if you have if you have a moment, you can check us out and and just look through some of our past episodes that we've done and and, and that kind of thing. We thank you so much for this opportunity. And um, John, right before right before we close, where can our listeners of the RFP and our For Freedom podcast. Where can they meet us here soon? Oh, I'm so glad you. I can't believe I almost thought, guys. You got to come to Bourbon, Missouri. You got to yes. come to the meetup. Why? We're gonna be there. Well, I mean, hey, hey, come hey, on. Uh, RFP guys are gonna be there. Um, we're yeah, gonna they'll be, be there, there too. But we're, we're gonna. Be I there. think some others are gonna be there, but I don't want to speak for them. But um, it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be awesome. Yeah, we're gonna have a August twenty seventh. No, August twenty fifth. Through the twenty seventh, yep. Bourbon, go to the RFP dot. Go to the RFP website. RFPnetwork.org. There. Um, RFP yep. You can have the meetup tab. Register. It's going to be great. We're going to have us all there. Uh, I think that we may be doing a little talk. I don't know what the guys have planned, but it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And so hopefully you can be there and join us. And uh, hey, we want to meet you guys and uh, get to know your story. We've shared our story a lot. Um, and we've talked about us, but we would love to hear some of your stories and what you've done. And we're going to bring our recording stuff. And, you know, hey, if you want to be a guest on the show while we're there, grab us. We'll make some time for you. And uh, even if it's just a 10-minute clip of who you are and what, you're, what you've went through as far as legalism and abuse, uh, we'll talk with you. It would be great. And uh, we'd love to have you on there. Absolutely, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm pretty I'm pretty excited. So, uh, can't wait to see you guys out there at the RFP meetup in Missouri. Uh, to JC, Nathan, and Brian, thank you guys so much. And uh, I think I say this with everybody else: we're excited to uh, when you guys uh, get finished with your break to have you guys back uh, taking over the ship as well. Um, but I think that's all for today, and so we're not going to do the RFP sign-off. We're going to do our sign-off that we normally do on ours on the For Freedom podcast, and that is this. To God, not spiritual abusive communities, be the glory. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.